Hello and a warm welcome to this week's Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Koskila and I'm back with my co-host and the editor of Gold, Helena Beer, to bring you another fantastic episode after our season two launch last week. Absolutely. Last week's episode was a great success and we're excited to be bringing you more exclusive Gold content. It occurred to me while I was prepping for this episode that this is season two, episode two, launching on the 22nd of the 2nd, 22. I don't know about you, but I find that particularly satisfying. It's the little things. Well, it's definitely something Australian cricket legend Richie Benno would be proud of. Cricket references aside, for those of us who aren't avid fans, let's get to it and kick off this episode with some news from the last week or so in Things You Might Have Missed. So what's been on the news wires this week then, Helena? A new report from Global Data caught my eye. It's called The State of the Biopharmaceutical Industry 2022, and it looks at the emerging technologies that are projected to have the greatest impact on the pharma industry this year. The two technologies to come out on top are AI and big data, which strengthens the same trend seen in 2021. I don't think this will come as much of a surprise, but it acts as a reminder for pharma companies that investing in and ensuring competence in these technology areas will be vital for improving productivity and driving efficiencies in drug development and ultimately improved patient care and outcomes. Yeah, as you say, this is an area that's seen so much attention over the past two years, and there's already progress on this in 2022 with Sanofi's deal with the pharmatech company Accentia to develop oncology and immunology treatments being one example. It'll be interesting to see even more developments in AI over the coming year, and we'll be following the developments on the Gold podcast and in the magazine, so do stay tuned to that one. Another hot topic at the minute is stem cell and gene therapies, and this week news broke that a US woman has reportedly been cured of HIV after undergoing a stem cell transplant. She's said to be in remission from the virus after receiving a new combination of specialised stem cell transplants for treatment of acute myeloid leukaemia. She has had no detectable levels of HIV for 14 months and no need for antiretroviral therapy, making her the first woman and the third person to date to be cured of HIV. This treatment was part of a wider study following 25 people with HIV undergoing transplants with stem cells taken from umbilical cord blood for the treatment of cancer and other serious conditions. This type of transplant is a new approach and may make the treatment available to more people. It'll be interesting to see how that story develops and if this patient's state of remission continues. However, if it does, it'll be absolutely fantastic news and really demonstrates the potential of stem cell treatment. You wouldn't necessarily expect New York Fashion Week to appear on the Gold podcast, but that's exactly what we're talking about next. So last week was New York Fashion Week and it featured the Blue Jacket Fashion Show, which is an annual event to raise awareness of prostate cancer, focusing on health inequalities and improving early detection and reducing mortality, particularly among black men who are disproportionately affected by the disease compared to white men. Organised by Zero, the End of Prostate Cancer, a not-for-profit advocacy group, the Blue Jacket event sees various well-known names in the world of fashion reimagine a traditional blue jacket and their designs are then modelled by America's great and good on the catwalk. The event is sponsored by Janssen Oncology, who will match donations made to Zero, the End of Prostate Cancer, between the 10th of February and the 3rd of March, up to $10,000. A great cause with such an important message. Now, moving on. Recently, Gold learned of the I Will Always Be Me project, which is a collaboration between the Motor Neurone Disease Association, Dell Technologies, 
Intel Corporation and the healthcare comms agency VMLYNR. Yes, the foursome got together to create a technology and user experience that enables patients with motor neurone disease to easily capture a digital version of their own voice so this can be used once their ability to speak is taken by the disease. We were really intrigued by the project, so we invited Chief Creative Officer of VMLY and R, Wayne Best, to tell us more about it. We asked Wayne to dig into the I Will Always Be Me project itself and the challenges it is seeking to solve for people with motor neurone disease. So the specific thing that we were trying to do is, you know, when you have motor neuron disease, you lose your voice. And the ability to communicate in your own voice, you know, is, is really important. It's your identity. It's who you are. You know, it's that thing that connects you with your family and your friends. Um, you know, and then there was the ability to, to bank your voice. That started coming into play, I don't know how many years ago, but, you know, it's in the last couple of years, it's become more common. And what that means by banking your voice is you can create a uh, digital version of your voice that then allows you to communicate in your own voice once it's gone. Uh, the problem was that it was a really laborious process. It would take months to record. I forget, I think it was 1,600 words or something you had to read. Um, and as a patient, you had to go into like a very cold and clinical environment and uh, and be and, and read words that made no sense, like you know, red lorry, red lorry, yellow lorry, or you know, the cow jumped over the moon. Things that just you know that they they just randomly put there so that they would get the pieces and symbols and things that they needed syllables uh, so that they could capture voice. But because it was such a a difficult process, only about twelve percent of patients actually went through with it. So you know. 88% of patients were, were not banking their voices. The other thing, though, and this is where it gets tricky, this is where it, it, it becomes sort of a little bit more magical, is that we we also learned that, you know, one of the other hurdles was that people, patients, you know, they don't really want to discuss it. They don't know how to talk to their families. They don't know what to tell them, you know, is, is going to be happening to them. Like, they hear it from the doctor, but they don't always pass on that information. And so... We wanted to give people a tool that not only uh, allowed them to tell their family and friends uh, what their bodies were going to be going through and how they were going to be changing, but we also had this idea to bake all of the words and sounds, you know, into that story that you would need to bank your voice forever. You know, so what used to be a cold and clinical multi-visit process into a sound studio could be you just reading your family a book in 30 minutes in the comfort of your home. Uh, letting that family know, you know, what was going to happen to your body, but that underneath it all, you would still be yourself. It's a fantastic idea that will enable patients to retain their personal identity as the disease becomes more severe. Yes, and I can think of so many other diseases as well, where this technology or technologies that are very similar could be really impactful. Yeah, interestingly, a film was created as part of the project. So we asked Wayne about how the team engage people with motor neurone disease to tell their stories. It really helped that we had these directors. What, what what they did was because these things can be always very touchy because you know the cameras are there, you can't hide the cameras. So you really need to make people feel comfortable and let them kind of forget the surroundings and just be in the moment. Once we got the cameras rolling and once we saw the book in action, you know, it it all just sort of worked out because, you know, it did the job that we were hoping it would do. And I think that the patients saw it, uh, even though it wasn't easy for them, 
I think they really felt the experience was worthwhile. It was like they went on a journey with their families. And uh, it was wonderful to see when they heard their own voices back. I mean, there were very tough times because the book ends on, I will always be me and I will always love you. And, you know, that, that brought many tears. I mean, there were a lot of, there was a lot of emotion through filming this, but, um, you know, so there were those moments, but then there were also moments where they heard their voice back. And one of the guys, you know, they typed into the computer, like that is a sexy voice. And when that came out of the computer in his voice, you know, it just busted you up. So it was, you know, and that's what you're looking for. You want those moments. You don't want like, that's, that's the beauty of, of, of having the voice banked, which is it that's going to be there forever. Another element we were keen to learn more about was the collaborative nature of this project. The past few years have seen a surge in collaboration across all areas of healthcare. So we asked Wayne how this team pulled together to make the project a success. That's a good question. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I'm at the agency I'm at and, and that we do the work that, that I'm proud of is because we are a very collaborative agency. We, it does get more complex when you're using outside collaboration. But we couldn't have done this without collaborating with all of them. I think, you know, each and every partner added something to the project and without it it would have fallen apart. I'm 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 not gonna I'm not gonna lie. It uh there were a few times when we thought the project was gonna die. You know, that's scary. You know, it's scary because we cared about it. We wanted it to, to live and you know it it there were a couple times where it was like what do you mean it may not be happening now and um we pushed through um and it ended up being worth it in the end so you know it was it was it was about as good as a large collaboration like that can get i also think that that partnership between health and technology is a big one you know i i, I do i i would like to believe that if steve jobs was still alive um he would have been trying to advance healthcare now interesting insights there and also very solid evidence of the power of collaboration in healthcare. It's a topic we've spoken about extensively in gold so do head over to our website if you want to read more about collaboration within the pharmaceutical industry in particular. Lastly we asked Wayne about his advice for any of our listeners working in pharma who are interested in pioneering patient-centric quality of life projects of this nature. Yes he has some great tips so let's hear his thoughts. I think to really put yourself in the patient's position, you know, to really think about the patients and what they're going to be going through and to find a way to help them, you know, with empathy and understanding. It's really easy to get caught up in what you're offering. Um, But if you just flip that around and think about what they need and why they need it and how important it is to them in their life, I think that that Anything that the more you can surround the patient and really talk to them in ways that they're going to respond to, the better. And I would also remember that you know technology, you know, can be good. I know that we we all hear about like the presidential election being decided by social media and think about memes and the metaverse and and, and all that fun like negativity around uh, technology and innovation. But you know, the other side of that is you know in the health space, it can really change things and um, solve real human problems and, and, and improve life for, for us. So, I mean, this is hopefully a good example of, of, of how we did that. And I'd, I'd love to see more people doing this. And that concludes our chat with Wayne. It was great to hear about this project, really inspiring and lots to take away for our listeners, I'm sure. 
I hope we'll see the industry working more on projects like this in the future. Next up, we've got our deep dive into the latest issue of Gold, and this time we're taking a closer look at our infographic, which focuses on risks to the complex pharmaceutical supply chain. Notoriously challenging to maintain and protect, its resilience was tested to the max during the COVID-19 pandemic, and important lessons were learned. The infographic investigates the possible impact of unpredictable events on the industry's complex distribution network to understand its resilience and vulnerability, while a corresponding feature looks in more detail at how pharma can respond to potential threats and how the pharma supply chain needs to be modernised, improved and strengthened. It's such an interesting topic and there's such a variety of potential risks that lots of people wouldn't necessarily have considered. Now, Gold's content and editorial assistant, Jade Williams, recently had a chat with assistant editor Isabel O'Brien, who collated the infographic and put digital pen to paper for the supply chain's feature. So let's have a listen. What first inspired your choice to research the topic of supply chain vulnerability? I kind of first started looking into this a couple of issues ago when I explored the topic of COVID-19 vaccine fraud and kind of how a lot of that was happening through supply chains, through vulnerabilities in supply chains, batches were going missing, being replaced, all this kind of thing. So that's kind of where my interest in this really began. But then a couple of interesting reports had just come out from McKinsey and EY, kind of about the impact of the pandemic on supply chains, but also adverse events more broadly. And I found that really, really fascinating. So decided to do an infographic on it. What information did you find the most interesting or surprising? In terms of what I found most interesting and surprising, um, apart from the fact that meteoroid strikes obviously have a big impact on supply chains, I guess that's not that surprising. Um, It was actually about branded and generic drug manufacturers and kind of the differences that we see there when it comes to supply chain vulnerabilities. So branded drug manufacturers are a lot more resilient against pandemics as they have at least several months of safety stock in APIs, finished products and products in the distribution cycle. Whereas generic manufacturers are much more at risk as they've got lower profit margins, higher dependency on countries for supply chain, and they're more affected by API shortages. So I just found it quite interesting to see the difference there. So cyber attacks are presented in the infographic as the highest risk of vulnerability to pharma supply chains. Why is this the case and what steps can companies take to protect themselves from this danger? Yeah, so cyber attacks are a very interesting one. The two instances that we pick out in the infographic are the Merck NotPetya attack. So that happened in June 2017, had a really massive impact, infected computers. I think it was 30,000 computers over all of Merck's sites and they ended up losing about 800 million in revenue so that was a really massive attack and then the other one was Dr Reddy's laboratories which actually happened very recently over the course of the pandemic and that was an attempt to steal vaccine research that shut down manufacturing plants all over the world which obviously would have had a massive impact as well so cyber attacks are a real threat to the pharmaceutical industry. In terms of why uh, I kind of referred to McKinsey on this one They did a bit of research around the subject and they reckon it's primarily because of the industry's abundant proprietary knowledge, capital intensity, international data flows and moderate level of digitization. And I'd really like to focus on that last one for a second. The digitization aspect really seems to be a key reason why cyber attacks do happen to the pharmaceutical industry and do have such an impact. This industry just isn't quite where others are in terms of cybersecurity. So, yeah, I think that needs to be a really core focus if companies want to protect themselves against cyber attacks. 
So within your feature, you note that often supply chains to produce drugs or even the drugs themselves will be sourced from a single region, which inevitably caused some disruption at the height of the pandemic when borders were forced to close. Could you explain and maybe expand on some of the options for improving this model that you explore within the piece? Yeah, so I guess this is moving on a little bit more to the article that I wrote alongside the infographic, which is sort of looking at how risk can be addressed if the infographic is kind of showing where the risk lies. And again, I'd like to refer to McKinsey to their report to kind of answer this question in a bit more depth. So something that they offered is that a company might revert to domestic production, nearshore the supply or offshore to new locations. And I found this really interesting because we actually went to a talk at FT Live and there was a bit of debate around this, particularly around reshoring. Uh, one of the speakers from AstraZeneca was quite dead set on the fact that reshoring wasn't necessarily the way to go, purely because you have such pockets of expertise in different countries. And of course, when borders close, you have to come up with creative solutions. Ideally, you'd want to bring all the supply chains closer to the patient, source locally, but that's not always going to be possible. And you can't lose the expertise just for the sake of bringing things closer. Another aspect that they highlighted is really important is really increasing inventory. They said many companies are striking a sort of shrewder balance between just-in-time and just-in-case inventory levels, as well as taking a more altruistic approach. So the situation they described was about, supposing you find out that a manufacturing plant is about to be affected by a natural disaster, instead of suddenly pulling all the manufacturing out of there, the company could offer relief to that manufacturing plant, get it back up on its feet quickly, not do too much moving around, but also the supply chain is not affected. Medicines are still getting to patients. What do you think the supply chain of the future looks like? Yes. So obviously we've spoken about some of the risks, some potential solutions, but I think when we're thinking about the broadest, best solution for solving these pain points with supply chains, it's blockchain. Uh, This is a topic we've written about quite a lot in gold in the most recent issue so do check it out if it's an area of interest but yeah blockchain has a lot of potential in the area of supply chains so something I want to bring up first is digital twins if you don't know what a digital twin is it's a digital replica of a supply chain and through machine learning you can basically simulate potential challenges in the system that could happen in real life This was something that would have been very useful during the pandemic. A lot of companies suffered because they didn't have this kind of technology. So supply issues would come up unexpectedly. Whereas if this software had been in place, they could have been predicted. So yeah, I think that will be really important in the future. Uh, Tracking digital identities of products using barcodes and blockchain will also be a really big factor. So attaching barcodes that could be securely tracked through a blockchain network This will prevent counterfeiting, as I mentioned earlier, and just generally enable companies to have a lot more visibility. If our listeners could take away one piece of advice from this conversation today, what would you suggest? It's a hard one, um, but I think I'm going to refer to something Angela Bowden, a partner at Deloitte, said at the FT Live conference, because I think it really underpins everything we've spoken about today. And she said the supply chain itself is becoming make or break to company success. Whereas before, maybe it was just seen as a way to get the product to the patient. I think this is going to be a way that companies can really stand out commercially if they've got a really advanced, developed, effective supply chain. Ultimately, that's going to enable them to do their job so much better, get medicines to patients so much faster, more effectively and safely as well. And that sadly concludes this week's episode. A massive thank you to Wayne for joining us and to Isabel and Jade for their contributions and to the whole of the Gold team for producing such a great episode. 
We'll be back next week with more brilliant content spanning the farmer industry. So be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't already. And another final reminder to look out for this latest issue of Gold, which came out last week at www.emg-gold.com. Thank you for listening and it's goodbye from us both. See you next week. Bye.